So kind of really has kind of helped me get my understanding of the rapture a little bit better, I think, just being ready, how to be ready at any moment. So that's been been exciting, to, to say the least. But we're looking forward. She does have about a week, a little bit less than a week. And, uh, and so we're looking forward to that. Just to give you a brief update of what's going on out at Mount Lucanne Bible Camp. We are halfway through the summer, a little over halfway. We've had three weeks of junior camp. We've had one week of day camp. And we're about to kind of shift gears and head into teen camp tomorrow. And uh, so if you could be praying for that, we actually have the largest teen camp ever, uh, starting tomorrow. Okay, so 136 campers are expected to arrive onto the property, and we've got to find a bed for them all and, you know, make sure they all have a seat in the dining hall. And if there are any campers coming, don't be nervous. We do have places for you to to be. But it'll be exciting, to say the least, to make sure that everybody fits in there. And they're looking forward to ministering to all of them. If you could be praying for me, uh, I will be uh, teaching on conquering your thought life, and then also on how to be a good example in two different chapel periods uh, throughout the week. So if you can be in prayer for that. Uh, and then also, if you remember, Anna and I were getting ready also to move. Uh, August the 9th is the, the day that we will be heading south, and I'll be beginning on September 3rd is the, the first Sunday that I'll be uh, preaching there uh, at Spoons Chapel is the name of the church. I don't, don't ask me how it got the name Spoons Chapel, but uh, it's been a, around since 1838, and uh, so it's been there for a while, for a long time, and looking forward to starting a new chapter of our lives there. They do have a, some of you have asked where we're going to live. They do have a parsonage there, so that's a real blessing. We have a place to, to live, and uh, looking forward to that, and kind of settling down for a lot, little while. We've been traveling a lot the last couple of years, so it'll be nice and different to kind of uh, settle down in one place. So we're looking forward, looking forward to that. Well, this last April, the Encounter team went to Zambia, Africa. I had the opportunity uh, to go there with them. This was my second time there, and, and uh, God really showed me some things on that trip. And, uh, and so I, this is a, a challenge. What I'm going to share with you this morning has been a challenge to my heart. It's nothing that I have come to, uh, that I have conquered, or that I believe that I am there yet. I'm still on the climb, but uh, I'm... Looking forward to sharing with you what God has placed in my heart through, through that time there. I wonder how many of you have your Bible with you this morning. If you could just hold it up. Let me just see how many of you have your copy of the Word of God with you. Now we're going to do a sword drill. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But uh, most of you, almost all of you, have a copy of the Word of God. And that is incredible. That is incredible. I think if I were probably to ask you how many Bibles do you have in your home, we'd probably get a variety of different answers. But uh, on average, I'll share this in a little bit, but on average, American homes have 4.4 Bibles per home. That's incredible. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I have always understood just how privileged I am to have this. I don't think I've, I've known that or recognized that. I think I've taken it for granted many times. And uh, because from the time that I was little, I heard uh, Rick Shaver say, knee-high to a grasshopper. I like that saying. From the time that I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I've always had access to the Bible. All right? I've, I've always have. I, I always remember being in my house. Um, the Bible has been a part of my life. And I would say for many of us, we probably would agree. That's true of us. The Bible has been there. We don't know what it is like to live in a world without a copy of the Bible being accessible to us. 
But for most of history, much of history, and for even still today, much of the world, that is the scenario that they live in. They can't just go to the bookstore and pick up a Bible, and most of them can't afford that. And for many, many, many centuries throughout history, they would have had to go to the local synagogue or go to a priest or go to somebody who was really wealthy, and then they could read the Bible. But that was the only way they had access to the scriptures. You and I are incredibly privileged to have this. Now in Zambia, Africa, I remember looking out at the the congregation there, and, and I saw something in the eyes of these people that I have rarely, rarely ever seen. And this was a deep, fervent hunger for God and a hunger for his word, because many of them didn't have this book in their lap. Many of them didn't have a Bible, and I can't tell you how many times I was asked while I was there, oh, do you have a Bible that you can give me? Do you have a Bible that I can have? Some of these were pastors who were asking for a Bible. you imagine trying to grow in your faith without a Bible? That's like trying to, to grow physically without eating. It doesn't work. You need a copy of the Scripture. I saw this hunger in the eyes of these people. Incredible, fervent hunger for more truth, for more teaching, whatever we could give them. And, and we came to a pastor's conference about midway through the week, and uh, we were expecting about four or 500 pastors to show up here. We had about 600 people show up. And I say people because they weren't just pastors who showed up at this pastor's conference. In Zambia, if there's any th- time where they're teaching the Word of God, everybody, it seems like they just drop Maybe they don't have anything to drop, I don't know, but they just go to wherever they're teaching the Word of God. And so the buses came in, and we had about six, we were bursting through the seams, we're like, how are we going to fit all these people in here? And so we thought, okay, we'll have all the teenagers, because there were teenagers in this group, we'll have them go outside, and we'll meet with them outside, while we also have people teaching to the pastors and to the adults inside, and so we did this. Teenagers over there in Zambia are about 30 and under. It's a very relative term, teenager. Um, but, uh, and so they went outside, and, and that made enough room inside for everybody to be able to get a seat. But one of the awesome privileges that we had that day was we were going to feed everybody there a lunch. This is a big deal. You get a free meal. You get teaching from the Word of God. It was a pretty awesome opportunity for these people. And so we fed them lunch, but we realized we didn't have enough food right away for the teenagers. So we had, they had to wait longer for their meal. Well, it was about midway through a message. One of, the, one of our teachers was teaching the teenagers uh, actually how to go through the Bible in five words. And, uh, and he was teaching them. And, and he was about halfway through his message, through his lesson. And news came that lunch had been finished for the teens. And so he, he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pause for now. I'm going to, I'm going to get, um, I'm going to finish this later. I'm going to dismiss you all. You can go and head out to lunch. We'll finish this later on. Nobody moved. And finally, somebody spoke up and said, no, we're not going anywhere. You finish the lesson now, and we can eat later. Isn't that incredible? So what I've decided to do today is we're going to skip lunch, and I'm going to be teaching to... No, I'm just kidding. But it's incredible. I wonder how many of us, if we were put in the same situation, would do the same thing. Lunch is done. Food is ready. We've been waiting all day under the beating sun. We're ready to eat. It's ready. No, no, we want to finish the teaching first. Let the food get cold. We, don't care. we want to hear this. 
That is hunger for the word of God. They were more hungry for the spiritual food that we had to offer them than they were for the physical food. How many of us can say the same? How many of us can say the same? I think for most of us, I think the problem that we see in our society, in our culture today, is we've just lost our hunger for God. And maybe you say, Isaac, I'm not sure that's a fair assessment of our culture. I think there's still a great hunger for God, and there might be some, but let me just share a few statistics with you to kind of back up that assessment. A recent poll showed that 88% of Americans own a Bible. That's incredible. I don't know if there's ever been a culture where 88% of their people own a Bible. That's an an incredible statistic. And I mentioned earlier, 4.4 Bibles per home. I counted the Bibles in our home. We have about 13 in our home. I shouldn't say about. We have 13 Bibles in our home. But here, the poll also said this. They said that 26%, only 26% of Americans read the Bible at least four or more times a week. So all these people, about three-fourths of Americans have a Bible, over three-fourths, four-fifths of Americans have a Bible, okay, but we don't read it. This is a problem. We have lost our hunger for God. Now let me go and share another statistic. In the same breath, they did a study, a study was recently done, this is a yearly study that they do, the amount of screen time that Americans spend per day. And it was actually up over an hour from last year, okay? 10 hours and 39 minutes a day is the average time that Americans spend on screen time. This is not counting texting, it's not counting selfies, and it's not counting talking on the phone. Now, I don't know how exactly they record this. I guess they just have people kind of, I don't don't know how they do that, okay? But 10 hours and 39 minutes. You might be saying, Isaac, that cannot have been, that could not have been an accurate study. That's ridiculous. Let's say it was even just half that. Do you think God has given you and me life, the most valuable resource that we have is our time, for us to spend even five hours a day staring into a screen? You say, no, they could be reading the Bible on their screen. It could be, I guess. It could be sharing the gospel, I suppose. But I think the vast majority of that time is not sharing the gospel with people, is not reading the Bible, and certainly not spending time with their families. It's not doing important things. Not stimulating to the mind. All right? For the most part, we have spent, we're allowing ourselves to spend that amount of time staring into a screen. If, you, if, if they were to keep that pace their entire life and live to the ripe old age of 79 years old, the average life expectancy of an American citizen, they will have spent 33 years looking into their phone or onto their computer or the tablet. 33 years. That's incredible. So here is the obvious conclusion that I came to. Maybe you come to a different conclusion, but, but I feel like this is obvious. It would seem to me that we believe media to be more beneficial than God's word. I know that sounds like a strong way of putting it, but I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how we can get around that, that conclusion. It seems to me that we truly believe that we can find more in media than we can in the word of God. That there's something in media that the Word of God just doesn't have. It can't offer us. The Word of God is is lesser. That seems to be the obvious conclusion to me if we look at that study and compare those statistics. 
I think we have lost our hunger for the word of God. Here's the key truth that I want to focus on today as we talk about this, hungering for the word of God. True satisfaction is found only in seeking the Lord. Okay, I think this is something that we all probably say a lot. It kind of becomes a cliche if we're not careful, but I think we need to understand this true satisfaction is only found in seeking the Lord. And let me show you in Scripture several different places here. Matthew 6, 33, perhaps the most famous statement here uh, concerning this. It says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. It's an incredible verse, Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And listen to this. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's look at these two. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. forevermore. Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and then he will give you the desires of of your heart. Several well-known preachers have even commented on this. John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Okay, Blaise Pascal said that if God exists, then not seeking God must be the gravest error imaginable. If one decides to sincerely seek for God, doesn't find him, the lost effort is negligible in comparison to what is at risk in not seeking him in the first place. My favorite one is what Augustine said. He said, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement. No greater satisfaction is going to be found than when we're seeking the Lord. That's what the Bible tells us. I think we don't often believe it, or else we wouldn't be spending 10 hours and 39 minutes on, our, on media. But it's the truth. It's found in seeking the Lord. This is what, how God has designed us. He's designed us to need him. All right, but how do we cultivate this hunger for God? How do we do this? Well, perhaps the greatest example of someone seeking the Lord with their life is that of David. And we're going to look at Psalm 63. I think it's one of the most beautiful passages on this very subject. I want to give you a little background of this chapter. I think this is one of those chapters that we've read many times, but we don't, uh, don't think about what's happening at this point in David's life. David had a, had a lot of uh, difficult circumstances in his life. We could probably remember a lot of them. Uh, when he was younger, he, remember he was playing the harp for King Saul, and, and Saul tried to pin him to the wall on two different occasions with his, with his javelin. We also know David spent years running for his life in the wilderness from King Saul. He hid in caves, in ravines. Okay? He, he even spent some time in the enemy territory, in the land of the Philistines, so he could hide from King Saul. On one day, he came home with his, with his, uh, with his troops, and they came back to their town, and, and they found that it had been burned to the ground, and Amal- the Amalekites had raided their land, and they took their women and their children, they took all their possessions, and they burned their homes to the ground. That's a difficult situation I've ever heard one, but it gets worse. When they saw, when David's men saw what had happened, they said, oh my goodness, David, look what you did. And they wanted to stone David. They blamed him for their problems, and they wanted to stone him. You talk about a difficult circumstance. 
Many of you probably remember that because of David's sin with Bathsheba, his seven-day-old baby boy died from a terrible sickness. One of David's sons raped his sister Tamar. And in revenge, another of David's sons murdered the wicked brother. You talk about tragedy, you talk about turmoil, you talk about family tension, you talk just difficult, difficult life. We often think of David as being this great king and great warrior and great poet, and he was all those things, but he had a very difficult, difficult life. But I think perhaps the most difficult situation that David found himself in was when his own son gathered an army and marched on his palace to take his own life. I can't imagine that. What that would be like to have your own child come and try to take your life and take your throne. The Bible says that Absalom turned the heart of the people against the king. And for the second time in David's life, he finds himself not in the throne room, not in the palace where the anointed one was supposed to be, but he found himself out in the Judean wilderness under the beating sun alone with only those who were loyal to him. And that is where we find him when he writes Psalm 63. How do I cultivate a hunger for God? I think we find three initiatives here in Psalm 63 that helps us to cultivate this hunger for God. The first is that you and I, we need to call out to God. You want to hunger for him, you need to call out to him. This whole chapter, this whole psalm is an example of calling out to God. It's a prayer. Okay, but we need to call out to him. There's two different ways that we find here in this verse, but let's read verse 1 here. It says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Two different ways we need to call out to God that we find here. First, we need to call out to him personally. Call out to him personally. Look here at the beginning. It says, O God, you are my God. Now, I've read this chapter, I don't know how many times, but it's so easy to just breeze over that statement and get onto the rest of it and miss the significance of what is said there. Oh God, you are my God. Any of you remember the first time when one of your children called you daddy or mommy? I have a little girl and I tell you the sweetest noise on the planet is she doesn't say daddy yet, she says dada, but when she calls me dada, it's incredible. It is special. Why is it so special? Because I am the only person in her life who holds that position. I'm her only dad. Now, she might get confused sometimes. She's still really little, and she's still learning, and so she might accidentally call someone. But but I'm the only one who really holds that position in her life. It's a special responsibility, special privilege and position reserved only for me. That's incredible. I think that's similar to what David says, Oh God, you are my God. If you read it twice, emphasize one time the word my. You're my God. You're my God. The first step when we seek the Lord is we need to remove all rivals of God from our lives. Remove all rivals. Because it should only be reserved for him. God, he's saying, he's in the wilderness, he's going through this hard time, he says, God, you are my God. You're my God. 
No one else has that position in my life. And maybe I did when I was living in that palace, but today I'm out in the wilderness and I want to affirm it even now. You're my God, and I'm calling out to you. He removes the rivals. We must remove the idols and rivals from our life to seek him. And then we find also that to call out to God earnestly is another thing that we need to do when we call out to him. Look at the rest of this verse. It says, earnestly I seek you, my flesh My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Just incredible imagery here in this this verse that I think sometimes we miss. We we forget where he's at. Here's what I think David's saying here. Here he is in this wilderness, and we don't know exactly what he's seeing, but perhaps he's sitting on top of this large cliff, and he's looking over this barren landscape, and maybe he sees this hawk circling overhead, peering down, eyes peeled for some small rodent scurrying in the, in the sand. Maybe his eye catches in the distance a herd of camels looking for a watering hole, and then he's startled all of a sudden by movement to his right, and here is a, here's a jackal scavenging for its next meal. And maybe his mind thinks about these animals and this barren landscape, and he thinks there's no way that those animals can ever stop searching for food or shelter. If they take one day off, they will die because they have no idea where their next meal is coming from. Lord, that's how I am with you. I seek you earnestly today. My flesh faints for you, my soul thirsts for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Just as these animals have no idea where their next meal is coming from, and they must search you out, and they can't take a break, and they can't throw in the towel, but they must constantly be looking for food and water and refuge. Lord, that's how I am with you. I'm in the wilderness. I'm seeking you earnestly. You need to call out to God personally, and call out to him earnestly. It reminds me of Psalm 42, verse 1. It says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Call out to God personally and earnestly. Second thing we find here, second initiative, is that we need to contemplate on God, meditate on him, think on him. Allow ourselves to become captivated and mesmerized by God once again. Look here at verse uh, verse 2. We see David contemplating on God's glory here in verse 2. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now, a few months ago when I was in Zambia, I had the opportunity to see Victoria Falls for the second time in my life. And and, uh, just a spectacular sight. It's the most incredible sight I've ever seen. It's a waterfall that's over a mile wide. All right, try to picture that. Okay, I know you're envisioning Niagara Falls. Okay, Niagara Falls is like a little tiny fountain or trickle compared to Victoria Falls. It's massive, this thing. And it's hundreds of feet down. You can't even see the bottom, and it's just a magnificent sight to behold. And I'm looking here at Victoria Falls, and and it's so clear to me that this is an example of God's glory and power. Wow. Wow. How can I help but look at this and not revel in the majesty of God? You know what's interesting? A man to my right was looking at the same thing, and 
I don't know exactly what he was thinking, but perhaps he was thinking, man, look what millions of years of erosion have caused to happen here. This is incredible. Somebody over here was was saying, wow, the power of Allah to have created such a vast waterfall. Maybe someone over here was saying, the the, the gods have smiled down upon this place and have created this beautiful thing. And so we all were looking at the same thing, and to me it was undeniable. This is an example of the power and glory of God, but yet we're all coming to different conclusions. Why is that? Well, here's why I was able to understand it as the power and glory of God, because I have read about God's glory in his word. We must begin here. All right, you cannot seek God apart from his word, at least not effectively. The only effective way to seek the Lord is through his word. So I, because I have observed God's glory and power in his word, I was able to recognize it in his work. All right, and you see, for the rest of the world, They're looking at it, and they're seeing something else because they don't have that worldview. They don't have that foundation. But for you and for me, when we seek the Lord, we must begin with the Word of God because that corrects our vision. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can shape God to fit us rather than looking at the Word of God and finding out how God actually is and shaping our lives to Him. There's a big difference there. Pastor Rick Warren said it this way. He said, the most common mistake Christians make in worship today is seeking an experience rather than seeking God himself. Another guy, B.B. Warfield, said this. He said, he who begins by seeking God within himself may end by confusing himself with God. A common mistake, very easy, I think, for us to do. But we need to begin with the word of God. So that when we see the the glory of God all around, we recognize it, that it's actually his fingerprint. That he is the one who has done it, and we understand it for what it truly is. Contemplate God's glory. Secondly, we need to contemplate God's love. Contemplate God's love. Verses 3 through 7 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. You ever said to somebody, I think I woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? Or a lot of times, I think what we do is we say to other people, I think you woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Common phrase, we use it all the time. But but I think the reality is this. Somebody once said it this way. They said, you don't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You wake up with what you brought to bed with you. Is whatever we, the last thought, whatever we were meditating on before bed, or maybe we woke up in the middle of the night and, and immediately we started thinking about something, but that's what we wake up with in the morning. It's whatever we were thinking about. And I think this is kind of what David is saying here. He says, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. This kind of gives me an, just an incredible vision in my mind of the king taking a shift at the night watch. 
Uh, an example of the humility of King David. Here he is, he's looking out of the vast landscape, and, and, and he decides that he's going to take a shift, let the other guys sleep for, for a while, and he's going to keep watch looking out for the enemy. And he probably had a lot of time to think in those moments. The cool night, quiet. And what came to his mind? If it would have been me, I, I can tell you what would have come to my mind. I can't believe this is happening to me. I've already spent how many years of my life out here in the wilderness? And here I am again. How in the world did I get to this place again, God? Why is this happening to me? Why why do I have all these problems and all these trials in my life? It would have been easy to contemplate on my problems. But you know what David does? He doesn't contemplate on his problems. I'm sure they were there, and I'm sure he couldn't remove himself totally from them. But you know what he says he's contemplating on here? The love of God. He says, your love is steadfast. He says, so I will, he says, my soul, in verse 6, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. Verse 7, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. He is just consumed with God's glory and God's steadfast, stubborn, never give up, headstrong love. And he's consumed with that thought, even as he's running from his life. Once again, finds himself out in the wilderness. That is what he's consumed with. I love the hymn writer, Frederick Lehman, wrote The Love of God. He said, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the sky as a parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. God's love is steadfast, it is stubborn. Dwell on that. So it's easier said than done. But in the midst of those Cool nights, lonely nights of your life dwell on the love of God. And finally, our third initiative, not only are we to call out to God and not only are we to contemplate on God, but we need to cling to him. Cling to God in the midst of whatever it is you're facing in life. And that's exactly, I think, what David does here in verses 8 through 11. He says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of lions will be stopped. In essence, he's saying, God has my back. I'm going to cling to him. I'm going to cling to him. I remember when I was a little, just a little boy, I was out one day playing in a stream and uh, I was trying to catch minnows or something. I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but I, I wandered too far out into the current. And I was just little at the time, wasn't a strong swimmer at that age. And, and so I can remember feeling utterly helpless. If I were to move at all, I'm convinced that I would have been swept downstream. And so I was stuck. You ask, what in the world? How are you standing there? Well, my foot was caught under this rock. And it was like jammed in there. And as long as I had my foot there, I was, I was secure. As long as I was clinging to this rock, 
I was firm. I was being upheld. And that's, I think, what David is saying here. God, I'm going to cling to you. I'm in the current. And right now I'm being swept away. And I have no idea what tomorrow holds. My own son marches against me. And I've had a difficult life my entire life. But Lord, I'm going to cling to you through this time. And so he does. He clings to the Lord. I think Jesus uses another illustration of the New Testament to kind of help us better understand this. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from clinging to God, holding tight to God, through thick and through thin, we can do nothing. Not only must we call out to God and contemplate on him, but we must cling to him through life storms, and God will sustain our peace. So as we close today, I want you to remember how we began today. The, the, the fact is, if you and I were to travel across the world today, you would find that the majority of the world does not own one of these. They don't have their very own copy of the Bible, and they are hungry for truth. Yet, ironically, we live in a land where we have over 4.4 Bibles per home, and we don't hunger for it. We don't read it. We allow it to collect dust, and only 28% of people are reading it four or more times a week. We have forgotten what it is to hunger for the Word of God. My mind comes to a story in the New Testament, one that you and I have heard many times, found in Matthew chapter 6. It's actually found in, in all four of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 6, 30 through 44. You don't need to turn there, but we find the, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we remember the story for the miracle and for you know, what a great example it was of, of how Jesus was able to turn something little into much, but, but there was so much more to the story. See, right before this story, Jesus was going through a difficult time. His great friend and, and cousin John the Baptist had just been killed. And Jesus' disciples had just returned from a missionary journey where they were out and they were ministering to different towns and villages and, and they just returned, they were tired. And, and so the Bible says that they were so busy and that people were coming to them in such droves that they didn't even have time to eat. And so Jesus says to his disciples, here's what we're going to do. We need to get away for a little while. We're going to go in this boat. We're going to sail to the other side of the lake and, and we're going to have a little respite there from, from our ministry. And so they do. They get in the boat. And they're floating to the other side, sailing to the other side. And there on the other side, they found a calm, peaceful countryside, only interrupted by the singing of the birds. Now, a crowd of people, over 5,000 men, and that was just the men. Who knows how many women and children were there as well. But a massive crowd had heard that somehow Jesus was going to land here at this place. And they came in droves to hear Jesus speak. They were hungry for the truth. And I don't know about you, but it would have been easy for me at that moment as I'm sailing across. And I see this crowd of people and I'm tired and I'm ready for a break to think, oh my goodness. Why do they have to? Let's go that way. Let's shift directions. But not Jesus. He looks at the crowd, and the Bible says that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for them. And he landed the boat, got up, and began preaching. And the sun grew high in the sky, grew late. Time for everybody to eat. You would have thought the people would have been again packing up and going home, getting up their lawn chairs and going home to where they had their, their food there, on the, the food getting ready in the crock pot. But they didn't. 
They stayed there. They wanted to hear Jesus more. And Jesus, that's when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, what do we have to feed these people? You feed them. And that's how the story comes to be, Jesus feeding the 5,000. But I wonder, if you and I were there that day, would we have stayed to hear Jesus speak? Would we have hiked however far it took to to be able to find the spot where Jesus was coming and, and to hear him speak? As the sun grew high in the sky, we didn't have a place really to sit down except maybe on the ground there and and, and as our stomachs started to ground, we thought about the football game that was coming on later, and we thought about, you know, how the food was, was getting ready, and, and we were just ready to go. Would we have stayed to hear and to receive the, the spiritual nourishment? Do you hunger for the Word of God? Are you more hungry for spiritual food? Okay, or are you more hungry for something else? All right, what's your appetite for here this morning? May we learn to hunger for God and seek him with all our hearts today. Let's pray together. Father, we just praise you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that we have such access to it today. Lord, at any moment we can pick up our Bible and we can learn something new about you that otherwise it would have just been hearsay or we would have had to receive it from somebody preaching or we would have had to to read a tract or, or something, but we have access to your word all the time. We praise you for that. I pray today for the millions, billions of people around the world who do not have that access. And I pray that you would provide them with Bibles, that they would have the ability to read your truth for themselves. Lord, we thank you, but we ask that you would help us to have more of a hunger for your word, more of a hunger for you. We love you, God. Lord, I pray that today as we go home, we'd not forget these things, but that our lives would be changed and challenged. Help me, Lord, myself included, Lord, I ask that you would challenge me and help me to desire your word more. We love you. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Thank you all for coming and for the opportunity that I had to to speak to you today. Pastor Paul says, go with God.